There are people who see the land as a commodity, you know, who are, and, and they've got their reasons for that. And that's what I wanted to explore. I didn't want to have like a villain or a, a saint. I wanted to really explore what brings people to, to view land as a commodity or to view it as a community to which they belong. So I was really exploring all that. And that's what kept me in it. Hello, and welcome to The Right Question, a radio program and podcast featuring authors from the American West and beyond. The Right Question is supported in part by Humanities Montana and members of Montana Public Radio, and by the Greater Montana Foundation, encouraging communication on issues, trends, and values of importance to Montanans. I'm Lauren Korn, speaking with Elise Acheson about her award-winning debut novel, Crazy Mountain which chronicles a rapidly changing fictional mountain valley in Montana, told through the diverse and conflicting stories of the people who live there. As newly built roads carve through the primal wild and the rural landscape transforms into subdivisions and resort towns, conflicts escalate between locals and newcomers, developers and environmentalists, the wealthy and the houseless. Here, I'll quote Deborah Magpie Erling, who writes of the novel, Crazy Mountain is a powerful story about possession and dispossession. Gritty and tough and gut-wrenching, Atchison shows us how the West continues to be an explosive and embittered battleground, both show and love story. Crazy Mountain ignites a firestorm. Elise Atchison is the author of Crazy Mountain and the recipient of a High Plains Book Award, a Montana Council Artist Grant, the Eludia Book Award, and a Barbara Deming Artist Grant. Her short stories and essays have appeared in numerous journals, anthologies, radio, and elsewhere. Elise, I'm so happy to have you here in Missoula in the MTPR studios. Welcome to The Right Question. Thank you so much, Lauren. I love The Right Question, and I'm so pleased to be on it. I'm so happy to have you here. Right off the bat, Elise, I want to talk about landscape. A poet I recently spoke to for The Right Question referred to ancestry and primal psychology when thinking about her landscapes of origin. Uh, But those landscapes weren't the landscapes of her adulthood. So, Elise, I'm wondering... What are your primal landscapes, your landscapes of origin, and do they differ from your chosen landscapes, the landscapes that you occupy now? Well, I've lived where I live now for most of my life, and it's kind of, um, I guess I would call it the center of who I am. So um, I, where I, I did grow up in Maryland and um, with um, farmland around, but that's Interestingly enough, also all developed now. And, you know, all the the fields and woods I used to play in are all housing. The house I used to live in has been raised in a big McMansion built over. You know, everything's changing, which is sort of what's in Crazy Mountain also. But I've lived out here. um, Well, I started coming out here when I was two and a half, but I moved here when I was in, I guess it was about 81. And I've been here. um, Well, I've been over in central Montana since, since the late 80s. What brought you out to Montana in the first place? Well, I've been out here many times. You know, I used to come out and backpack, and um, I had relatives out here in Billings and um, in the West. So, mm-hmm. And this book, I should say for listeners, it's centered in a fictional valley in Montana, the Crazy Mountain Valley, but it is it is based in your reality, right? There is some location-based realities in this book. 
I draw in some some realistic acts, aspects from the area, but it really, the town in Crazy Mountain could be any town across the West that is getting rapidly developed and changing from being wide open, undeveloped land into a heavily developed place with, with subdivisions and McMansions and um, resorts and trailer parks. And that's happening really all across the West. And it's been happening for a very long time. Yeah. I mean, it's not just, my book is set within a 50-year period, but it's been happening, you know, you can go back uh, millennia. Yeah. <laughs> There's been changes going on, so. Yeah, and the Crazy Mountains in in Montana, I should say, because there, I, I think maybe that distinction is going to be important for the, the sake of our conversation. But Montana's Crazy Mountains are surrounded not entirely, but almost by private landowners. Um, and so public access can be pretty difficult to get to to the Crazy Mountains themselves, specifically the peaks. And public and private land tensions appear. They do appear in your novel over hunting access, for instance. And I'm wondering, you know, we're going to stay out of the book for just a moment. Elise, what's the reality of that conversation of public versus private land ownership in the area where you are now? Well, I'm a very strong proponent of public lands, and particularly I'm a strong proponent of wilderness designation just because it protects um, habitat of various species. And development is just a continuation of the colonization and expansionism that's been going on for a long time. And we're, we're taking habitat from a lot of other species, and I think we need to keep that in mind and actually make an effort to protect habitat for other species. So public land is very important to me as well as public radio and public public libraries and public, you know, schools sure. and whatnot. But um, private lands, I think they play a role because large private lands actually, there are a lot of species living on them. It really depends on how it's used. Development is certainly one of the worst things that can happen to it for the species living there. So I think for private land, conservation easements are a good choice. In the area where you live now, are those, is that tension between public and private landowners pretty palpable? Is that tension happening in real time all the time? Well, there is. Yes, yeah. definitely. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, and I think, you know, as you become more and more populated, it's really a complex question because too much use can be really bad for a place. So I'm not really sure what the answer is on all that. I think more public land is always a good option, but um, there is definitely tension uh, between access and between hunting and between, you know, who owns the wildlife and, you know, who gets access to it, if you were talking about hunting. Yeah. um, Before we officially begin our conversation and before we get carried away with our conversation, I want to make sure that our listeners get a sense of your book, Crazy Mountain. Do you have an excerpt that you've been reading that might give listeners something to grab hold of or an excerpt that you'd like to read? So I'm going to read from the beginning of the book. Um, It's an elderly rancher who's watching everything she knows passing away. They both knew there would be no more doctors or hospitals. They only made things worse. And there would be no funeral homes or undertakers. They only complicated the simplicity of death. Besides, they were drifted in for the winter, and there would be no getting out until springtime. But they also both knew that since the ground was frozen, Mary would not be able to dig even a shallow grave and bury Frank alongside everyone else in the family graveyard. Her grandparents, who had originally settled this Montana land, her mother and father, who had worked the ranch into a tolerable living, her brother, who had always been around to help out, and their own daughter, who they had lost to a skittish horse when she was just a teenager. 
Her brother used to clear the roads for them once a week, barreling down the road in his plow-laden jeep, busting through snowdrifts like a raging bull, tossing the snow off to the side as easily as if he were breaking through clouds. The faster he went, the quicker everything flew out of his way. But when the drifts were really deep, it was hard to see exactly where the road was. One day he veered off the edge and hit a rock and flipped, and he was pinned under the weight of the jeep. By the, by the time they got to him, he was already dead. Losing her brother so early had been hard, but until now the hardest loss had been their daughter. She was only 14 years old the day she died. Even at that young age, she had already decided she wanted to stay on the ranch. She had already picked the spot where she wanted to, her house to be built someday, a secluded aspen grove a mile up the road where a clear creek trickled year-round and spring flowers bloomed lavishly across the hillsides. Their daughter chose that spot because she loved the bony beauty of the aspens. She loved the brilliant bluebirds that landed like sapphires on the slender gray branches. She even loved the constant wind and sculpted snowdrifts that settled deep and heavy in that canyon. They planned to pass on the entire 23,000-acre ranch to her and her future family when the time was right, but that time never had a chance to come. Now there was only Frank left, and after he was gone, there would be no one, no one at all. The next morning, Frank didn't respond to Mary's voice or even to the gentle touch of her hand. She was all too familiar with death, and she knew what was coming. Sometimes death swallowed its prey in one quick, ferocious gulp, like their daughter. But other times it took longer, and with Frank, death was slowly working up its appetite, nibbling around the edges, taking its own grim time to devour the center. It took two weeks for Frank to finish dying. She kept reaching out and touching him to make sure he was still there, and in that awful way she watched his life evaporate like the gradual drying up of a once vibrant spring creek. After he took his last breath and there was nothing left but the body, she undressed him and wrapped him in a cotton sheet, trying not to focus on the miles of empty space surrounding her now that Frank was gone. You mentioned that this book takes place over many decades, and that was one of the joys of making my way through it. We're starting in the 70s, and, you're, and you slowly make your way through these decades, um, told through, as you said, multiple perspectives, different characters. I'm wondering, Elise, how you mapped the trajectory that each character takes over those decades, because you have younger characters obviously aging over those decades. The land, too, as we've been talking about, has changed a great deal, developed over those decades. This is a craft question, the how you wrote the book question. I'm wondering how you, again, mapped the trajectory of those characters. I'm curious about the Tetrising you did to build this really robust story with so many different characters and time periods. So what, what, what sparked me and held me through the writing of the book was the idea of getting into many different perspectives on the changes in the land. That's what really interested me, just exploring all these perspectives. And I didn't have an agenda. I didn't have an idea of where it was going to go or who these characters were going to be or what their story was going to be. I just started writing them, and that's true for each chapter. I just started writing the character, and the character, the story grew out of the character, and the character grew out of the story. And they all interconnect. I mean, the, yeah. all the characters interconnect, and, and the land changes over time. And you're seeing many different perspectives on the changes in the land. I think, you know, I look back on it now, and I can verbalize what I was doing. But while I was doing it, I wasn't thinking of it in those ways. I was just writing. And then in the, in the um, when you go back and rewrite, that's when I start to think, well, you know, this person has to be this age if they were this age back here, that sort of sure. thing. Yeah. But um, I think one of the over overarching 
and I wasn't thinking about this when I was writing it, but there's a quote by Aldo Leopold. Um, we abuse the land because we regard it as a commodity belonging to us. When we see land as a community to which we belong, we begin to use it with love and respect. And that's by Aldo Leopold. And I think that with the characters, you see that every manifestation of that. There are people who see the land as a commodity, you know, who are... And, and they've got their reasons for that. And that's what I wanted to explore. I didn't want to have like a villain or a, a saint. I wanted to really explore what brings people to, to view land as a commodity or to view it as a community to which they belong. So I was really exploring all that. And that's what kept me in it. And I think it's in the rewriting that you make sure everything fits together. <laughs> How long did it take you to, you know, from first draft to, to published book? How long did that take you? Well, I set it down many times. So that, that idea that like you're working on it straight through the whole time isn't quite the way I work. I have books that I started before that that I'm now finishing up now. And I have another book that I started a long time ago that I haven't gotten sat down and written completely. So, so the, I started it probably um, a decade ago, but I wasn't like writing it straight through the whole time. Sure, I would sure. Put it, and I think it's beneficial to put it down and come back to it, yeah. it especially when you're having some of the characters do, do horrible things, you know, and, I, and getting a little distance and coming back and trying to think who are these characters, you know, what's motivating them, what makes them who they are, that is beneficial to, to step back from that sometimes and come back. Yeah, you mentioned the fact that you didn't want to write a villain. I'm wondering about the ways in which your book addresses like the Western stereotypes or even the stereotypes of those people coming into the West. Um, and then the second prong, I'm wondering how you consider likability when you're writing a character. Well, I'll, I'll say in the, in the first place that I don't think, I mean, I've read so many books where the characters weren't likable. They just had to be interesting and hold my interest. And I think that's all it takes. Um, I think characters have to be complex. They have to be human. They have to be flawed. They have to be nuanced. And I, I really didn't want the characters to be um, stereotypes of of these various people. Um, I really wanted to complicate them and, and find out who they are. And I hope I accomplished that with some of them. It's a very difficult thing to do and you never get it perfectly. But um, so I think I was trying to undermine the, the stereotype. Like I think this might be the the counter narrative to say Yellowstone, the series. Or because it, it's it's more complex, I think, with the characters and and where they, I hope, you know, and, and more nuanced with who the characters are and how they got to be who they are. There's a quote from um, Solzhenitsyn, the line between good and evil goes straight through every human heart. And I think when you're writing, that's kind of where you have to be writing from. You have to be thinking every single one of these characters has good and has bad in them. And there are characters in here who do horrible things, and yet I don't want them to be just these horrible people. I want them to be humans who came from, you know, they got that way in some way. You're listening to a conversation with novelist Elise Acheson. I'm Lauren Korn. This episode of The Right Question is supported by Elk River Books in Livingston, Montana, offering new used and rare books and frequent author readings in their lineup of events offered each season. A full events calendar and online shopping can be found at elkriverbooks.com. A few of the characters in Crazy Mountain, they think they want to live here. 
And then it's too harsh of an environment, whether that's some of the interactions they have with the people or the wildlife. They decide very quickly that this is not the space for them. But before they make that decision, before they decide this isn't the space, they think of this as a landscape that's sort of like paradise. What's your reaction to that word paradise, especially when it it's related to this crazy mountain valley? Or if you want to, if we want to talk, you know, reality, when people think of Montana as this paradise um, without actually knowing the realities of the environment? I think people are moving in with their dreams. You know, they have this idea of what they want and it's not reality. When they get there, they find out it's not reality. And it's the same as, I mean, it's really the same as a long-term marriage. You you decide if you make a commitment to a place, it's, they're going to be ups and downs. And a lot of people aren't willing to go with the downs and they get, you know, they can't fulfill the dream that they thought they were going to have in a place. So, you know, they move in and unfortunately they move in, they build a huge house, huge, nowadays it's, you know, a, a huge McMansion. They build a place and then they move out a few years later and that place is built, that place is there, that's not going anywhere, you know. Yeah. But a lot of people move in and they move out again. It's very common mm -hmm. across um, rural areas. Which also causes upheavals in the community, right? I was having a conversation with someone actually from Livingston um, earlier this afternoon, and we were talking, or I was kind of rambling, to be honest, but I was just talking about the idea that a lot of people who are moving into Montana, they don't have the community in mind. They want to move into this wide open space, but then there's no consideration of the larger community. And so they're often, you know, they're, they're restricting access to it. We talked about hunting earlier. They're not allowing hikers on the land. Um, and it's, it's really interesting to me that people would move to a place without the consideration of their role in a community. I think um, they may see themselves in a community of a particular group of people. Like if you're wealthy and you move in, you're part of this wealthy group, but these other people aren't part of your community, you know. Yeah. Which isn't the way a small town has been through his, you know, through history. It's it's been more of a everybody is part of the community. So I think it does change the notion of community um, hmm. for the people who are moving in. I think, you know. I think I think that's a really interesting idea that the idea of community has changed because of these new landowners or you know subdivision owners or developers that community is no longer what and you know we should we should speak to Montana this is our reality right and, and I know that it's a reality for many other people across the west but you are certainly writing about Montana in this book um, and you and I are both in Montana right now and, th and that you know Montana is our experience um, it's it's really disconcerting to have your home and the communities that you've built and nurtured and and created foundations for upended by people who don't have the same ideas of community. And I guess, I don't know that I have a question for you, except that I, I kind of want to dive into this idea of new community because there are these people in this book. You've created these characters. And so I'm wondering maybe how you considered community when writing this book. I think that... Um People move in and they want to make the community that they came from when it's they're really coming into a completely different place. And they don't necessarily take the time to get to know the place and um, try to try to be part of the, the place rather than try to change the place. Um, and I think, uh, you know, 
that happens quite frequently, you know. It's, I think, detrimental because you can't, if you want to make it like where you were from, you're really changing the place in drastic ways, both ecologically and culturally. And um, But as far as community goes, I mean, Crazy Mountain is all about community, but community with people and the landscape. It's, it's, it's a community of, of the whole um, ecosystem, really, <laughs> including humans. Um, yeah. You said that people are coming into this this valley and into Montana with their dreams or their um, ideas of what they want. And it's not, they're not finding that to be the reality. And I think that's really interesting. I think you can see that in the book, but you can see that in real life all the time. I mean, people come in and they, they want to make it a certain way, but it just doesn't, it's not what they thought it was going to be. And of course, a river runs through it, brought a lot of people in, and now there's Yellowstone, and that's really affecting our area in, in not so great ways um, because people have this idea of what they're moving into, and it's nothing like what it really right. is, you know. Yeah. And it's it's not um, it's not beneficial to the community to ha- to try to change it into this fictional type. Um, yeah, I think for listeners' benefit, it might be a good idea to talk about a few of the characters. There's a specific character that we see almost in every chapter of this book, and that's Kate. Tell me about Kate. So in the initial writing of the book, um, Kate was not really any more important than the rest of the characters. They were all sort of important to me. (laughs) But as I rewrote it and as I got to thinking about it, I mean, she and her brother, Tony, are the only characters that are there from the beginning to the end. And I also, I can talk about this after the fact because I wasn't thinking about it when I was writing her, but there's a correlation between the way people treat Kate and the way they treat the land. She's a very vulnerable character. She goes home, she's a troubled teen, and she goes homeless over the, um, in the middle of the book. And, and the way that people treat her is very similar to the way they treat the land. So there are people, that goes back to the Aldo Leopold quote, um, there are people who, who, it's a matter of really respecting you know, the intrinsic value and rights of those outside ourselves, whether they're vulnerable people or whether they're other species in the land. Um, and it really all ties together, I think. You know, it's it's being able to see yourself as part of a larger community, having a responsibility and in respecting the rights of, of others in the community. And Kate plays, she's very similar to the land in many ways. She she goes through the, the destruction and resurrection of the land. So she takes on many roles, but I wasn't really thinking about that when I was writing it. It's like after you finish it, you start to think, well, how am I going to describe all this? And that's when you start to see the connections and realize what's going on. Did you lean into that once you realized yes. that Kate was going to be this this present figure and this mirroring of the landscape? Do you really leaned into that? Well, I mean, in the rewrites, um, certainly it was clear that that there were characters who were treating and I think that makes sense to me because that's the way I see things. People either have respect for those outside themselves or outside their their species or outside their race or outside whatever you want to choose, or they don't, you know, and, and they only see themselves or their species or their race or their class as as being worthwhile. And so I think that's the way I see the world. So I think it came out naturally in the book quite quite a ways. I think you can see that same idea of the way we treat the land and the way we treat each other in a lot of the other books that are coming out. Like, I don't know if you've read Taylor Borby's Boys in Oil. He's writing about fracking violence against the land and against um, a boy growing up gay in in North Dakota. And of course, I know you interviewed um, Deborah Erling and her book, you know, 
I mean, in, in a lot of ways, her book is very similar to this because she's writing about the point of contact between Europeans and indigenous cultures and how everything changed and how this, these people came in with this commodifying idea and this idea of, of, the, of the land as something to use, the people as an inconvenience or something to use. You know, they, it's, a, it's a perspective of, I think she gets it across as a white male perspective, but um, that's a beautiful book. It's a wonderful oh, book. And I think, that, I think that she, uh, she really hit it out of the ballpark with that one. You, you said this is not, you know, we've, from the beginning, this is not reality. You are, this right. is a fictional account of, of this town, this valley. I was just trying to uh, uh, realistically portray what I'm seeing and what is affecting me. There's a word in the beginning of the book, solastalgia. Yes, I'm and, so glad um, you brought that up. <laughs> it's the, the grief and longing and loss you feel when you lose a place that you love, and uh, particularly to your environmental degradation. And that can be as strong as losing um, a person you love. You know, it can be a real visceral loss. And um, so I think I've seen, you know, I've gone through that. And I think a lot of people have probably gone through that. And um, and it's a, it's a visceral loss. And so I think that drives me, too, is my relationship with the land and what I'm seeing and how I want to depict what's going on to the land right now. There's also the anticipation of that loss, too, right? Like, for those listeners who maybe aren't confronted with this tension on a daily basis, they know it's happening. You know, it's, it's, it's a topic of conversation. And so while they might not be experiencing that grief now, especially with climate change, and especially because, you know, here in Montana, it's just the population growth is staggering. There's an anticipation of grief. And that is a, yeah. a very bizarre feeling. And I think there is, it, it's true, actually, that when people come in, they don't see the same loss because they're coming in with it already at that stage. So to them, what's happening from that point on is loss. And that could go back to Deborah Owling's book. You know, She's writing about the very beginning of the, uh, the colonization and expansionism. And um, people coming in are um, experiencing that loss from the point that they get there. And, right. And, and Very so, different. They're, yeah. they're entirely different and landscapes, I, I've possibly. been here for decades, and, you know, what I see, you know, losing— if I look a certain direction now that I used to be able to see stars to the horizon, I can't anymore. There's light over there. Or um, there used to be curlews nesting here or, or whatever species. They aren't anymore because it's heavily used. Or So you see that, and it can really affect you, or the loss in, in the actual— town itself and, and being able to rent a place for an affordable amount if you're a working person. All those losses are, are huge. Those, those, those things are important to me. So, so I think that kind of drew, drove the idea of writing about what is happening in the West right now. Yeah. Is this a hopeful book, Elise? I think it ends on a hopeful note. <laughs> I mean, you know, it's not a... Um, Overly hopeful book. I mean, it, it doesn't give false uh, false hope, but um, I think that uh, you know it ends with Kate, who has sort of been a symbol for this land, realizing that she has um, some agency in her life, which she maybe hadn't acted on in the past. So, and we certainly have agency in the landscape. We can decide what we want to do, how we want to live in this world. 
I, like I said, this book isn't designed to provide solutions. It's, it's more an exploration of, of the questions. And that's a cliche, but it's true. You know, it's an exploration of, of what is going on right now. It's not really providing answers. And yet, hopefully, the more we think about it, the more we can, can come up with some answers. That was novelist Elise Acheson, author of Crazy Mountain, out now from Sowelo Press. Look for more information about Elise at mtpr.org, where you can also subscribe to our podcast and follow us on Facebook and Instagram. You've been listening to The Right Question. This episode was produced by Chris Moyles and me. I'm your host, Lauren Korn. Chris also engineered this episode. The artwork for The Right Question was designed by Molly Russell, and our music was written and recorded by John Floridas. Funding for The Right Question is provided by the Greater Montana Foundation, encouraging communication on issues, trends, and values of importance to Montanans. Many thanks to Humanities Montana for supporting this program since 2008, and thank you for listening. The Right Question is a production of Montana Public Radio.